when countries are looking to bridge gaps now, they'll look at the RCEP agreement and say, oh, why don't we move this provision into, try and move it into the WTO text? Because these rules kind of live on once they appear in one agreement. And so it's just a concrete example of, of the implications of the U.S. not being at the table. This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. Welcome to the Asia Insight podcast series from the National Bureau of Asian Research. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region to help our listeners better understand Asia and reach informed judgments. I'm Doug Strube with NBR's Center for Innovation, Trade, and Strategy. In this episode, NBR counselor Charles Bustani leads a discussion on Indo-Pacific trade with Wendy Cutler and Robert Holliman. The conversation examines America's trade engagement in the region, Biden administration trade priorities, developments in digital trade agreements, and more, while seeking to answer questions about America's role in the region in the wake of major regional multilateral trade agreements that are reshaping the rules of trade without participation from the United States. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Welcome to this podcast. Uh, my name is Charles Bustani, and I'm with the National Bureau of Asian Research. And I'm very pleased to have two colleagues and friends join me in a discussion, a real conversation on trade policy. Uh, we're, we're honored to have Wendy Cutler and Robert Holloman both who served in senior positions at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. They were negotiators. They bring incredible depth of experience and knowledge to trade policy. And so what we're going to do is really have a a casual conversation about trade and what to expect from the Biden administration, what's going on broadly with global developments and so forth. Let me start with um, the uh, confirmation hearing for Catherine Tai, the nominee to be U.S. Trade Representative. A couple of points struck me uh, as interesting and noteworthy. One, when she was questioned about uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, she mentioned that it's important to understand the world has changed since 2015 or 2016. So we ought to explore that issue. Um, And then secondly, there were a number of questions that came up with regard to how is the Biden administration going to prioritize trade and especially new trade agreements? Um, And she seemed to push back on some of the other uh, administration statements saying that she was not going to stand still and that uh, the the trade agenda would be very active beyond just simply engage uh, uh, enforcement. So this question about uh, the world having changed to me is an interesting one. Uh, Certainly, I know all of us uh, here on this podcast have heard from other countries concerns about American engagement. And I guess the question is, is this just a perception or is it real in terms of America's role in the Indo-Pacific? So let's put that on the table for conversation. Wendy, what are your thoughts on this? Thanks, Charles. And I must say, it's my pleasure to join you and Robert. You know, it's interesting listening closely to um, Catherine Tai during her confirmation hearing, I couldn't agree with her more that the landscape on trade, both domestically and internationally, has really changed dramatically since 2015. Now, by coincidence, that's when I left USTR, 
but after 30 years, 28 years there, but I don't think um, there's any um, link between those two events. But um, let me start internationally. I think things have really changed on the international front. I mean, up until 2015, the United States was pretty much the leader in the trade world. We were putting initiatives and leading negotiations in the WTO. In the Asia Pacific, we had just concluded the TPP agreement. Um, And if you look all around the world, we were leading initiatives. You name the continent, we were there. And that really changed during the Trump administration. But what happened is the rest of the world didn't stand still. And so when we retreated and we were trying to figure out, you know, is, is, in, is not only international leadership in our interest, but is international engagement in our interest, the rest of the world kind of moved on. And in no, in no region is it as stark as um, Asia, the Asia Pacific region, where during the, over the past five years, we've seen the TPP agreement without us go into effect, and it's now been in effect over two years with now the United Kingdom expressing interest in joining. And RCEP, a negotiation underway for over seven years, was finally signed among 15 countries without India. So there are two mega deals in the Asia Pacific. We're not part of them. We're not at the, at the table writing the rules and we're not getting the benefits of, um, of the provisions of the agreement. So, you know, those are just a couple of, of examples of changes that have, um, you know, that have transpired. I agree with you, Wendy. I think things have changed quite a bit. And the question is, how do we, uh, how do we the United States, make the adjustment and adapt uh, to the, these changes? And Robert, Wendy mentioned some, some big trade agreements, some plurilateral agreements that have uh, been undertaken in the Asia-Pacific region. I know you've done a lot of work at looking at digital trade agreements. Um, that landscape has changed quite a bit, too, with implications for the United States. Would you elaborate on, the, on that? Certainly, Charles. Um, pleasure to be here with you and Wendy, and um, thank the National Bureau for Asian Research for for and the invitation to be part of this. Um, the digital trade issues are ones where there has been a steady growth in the number of agreements and the nature of those agreements uh, going back to the Obama administration, but continuing through in the Trump administration. I think what we've seen is when the TPP was concluded in negotiations in 2015-2016 that then became the CPTPP uh, when the U.S. left. There were a series of digital provisions in that agreement, uh, something we call the digital two dozen to really signify how expansive those new provisions were that became the new baseline for ensuring that data could flow across borders and that there was adequate protection for both privacy and that there were opportunities for technology choice through that mix. Um, That work has really continued. The U.S. has been part of that. The U.S. was part of that through the renegotiation of NAFTA in the U.S., so the new U.S.-Canada-Mexico agreement um, has data provisions that built off of what the U.S. had helped negotiate in the TPP, but added some new provisions to it. The U.S. reached a non-binding digital trade agreement with Japan um, that was a high standard agreement, part of the U.S. effort to sort of get back into the Indo-Pacific, having 
largely retreated with the withdrawal from TPP. And we've seen a number of other countries who are in Asia Pacific now negotiate new higher standard agreement. And I think Singapore is really at the nexus of a lot of those agreements. They've renegotiated their bilateral trade agreement with Australia to add new binding high standard digital provisions. And New Zealand has done something similar with Singapore, New Zealand, and Chile. So the ball keeps moving forward. The only thing I will say that is not consistent with that is the new regional comprehensive economic partnership, the RCEP agreement that has China and Vietnam and other countries. There are digital provisions, but they are not as high standard as we see in the CPTPP or as we see in these other agreements. So progress, but more needs to be done. And if if I could just add to what Robert said, because I think the RCEP is a great example of the effects when the U.S. is not at the table. And that chapter, I couldn't agree more with Robert. It's weak. There are a lot of loopholes in that agreement and long transition periods. And my understanding is the dispute settlement provisions are not even applicable to that chapter in RCEP, so it's it's non-enforceable. And what I worry is that, for example, in the WTO negotiations, when countries are looking to bridge gaps now, they'll look at the RCEP agreement and say, oh, why don't we move this provision into try and move it into the WTO text? Because these rules kind of live on once they appear in one agreement. And so it's just a concrete example of, of the implications of the U.S. not being at the table. Thank you, Wendy. I, I agree with you on that and, and, and on your broad points as well, both of you, the broad points you have made. I guess the question is, uh, are we really falling behind? Is the United States falling behind these developments in a rapidly growing area that has huge implications for U.S. economic growth and jobs, as well as broader security implications in the region? And so, Robert, I mean, with digital trade, we're a little bit more engaged, but not where we need to be. And then clearly on all the other issues, um, whether it's plurilateral engagement or even bilateral engagement, we're we're really at a standstill. And I'm thinking back, the last comprehensive agreement we, we had in the region was with South Korea. That was negotiated during the Bush administration, finally implemented, uh, ratified and implemented during the Obama administration. So we've had, you know, a number of years now where we're at, a, we're, we have been at a standstill with all these other developments ongoing. And the question is, will this become a priority for the Biden administration? And if so, how? I, I think uh, those are questions many of us in the trade world are, are grappling with right now. I, I think, Charles, that, you know, I think that's the right question. I think this actually goes back to the first question you posed about sort of what's changed in the landscape. And I do think for the U.S. to be successful in negotiating trade agreements, we have to confront the way not only the world, but particularly the U.S. is now. And, you know, what's really changed since the Obama administration were both, you know, I was certainly a deputy and Wendy was there and Wendy was a long-term career uh, negotiator uh, across administrations. But what's really changed is I think you've got sort of four things that have happened. One is that I think the election of Donald Trump in the U.S., changed the pre-existing view that had traditionally been a predominantly a Republican view with Democratic support about more trade agreements were better, more open trade was good, and that we should avoid things like tariffs. 
that whole equation was changed in the Trump administration. And so we begin with a different landscape. The second thing is we began, you know, we moved into a COVID environment. We moved into the economic challenge from that and a lot more attention in the U.S. around issues of racial justice and environmental justice and um, climate. And, and so I think that what the Biden administration is doing is to say we can no longer think of our trade negotiations in a vacuum, that we have to do them in the context of what will the American people and importantly, what will the Congress accept? Um, you know, and I will say, well, so to be clear, it was quite clear that TPP, while President Trump pulled the U.S. out of that, Congress had already signaled that they weren't going to move on it. So we don't have the consensus in the U.S. We begin to get that consensus around the USMCA. But I also think the recognition now is we also have to deal with these domestic issues around make sure we're investing at home. And in that context, I think the U.S. will be empowered to do more. And the U.S. will also need to explain and help talk about why issues like digital trade actually matter to working class Americans and why they matter. And they matter for simple reasons like health is now going to be determined heavily around data. And the ability to have better health is dependent not just on the data that we have in the U.S., but the data of how we fight new pandemics like COVID. So I think it's, uh, I think it's a pause that is an important pause because until we have our act together at home, we can't act assertively outside the U.S. on trade. I guess the question then becomes, how do we, if we're going to have this pause, and of course the administration announced the supply chain review process, the 100-day process, and then the broader process, how do we signal to our allies that we are going to be engaged, that we're going to be uh, active and have a, a forward-leaning trade policy uh, for the Indo-Pacific? Because many of our allies in the region are very concerned about this. So maybe I can start with that and just offer three suggestions. Number one, in Asia, just showing up at, at their meetings is important. And, um, you know, everything from the APEC meetings to the ASEAN summits, Asia's far away when you have to travel. Right now in the COVID world, doing these meetings virtually is easier. But yet the Trump administration, for the most part, even to the virtual meetings, sent pretty relatively, you know, junior people versus sending the president. And so I think having the president and senior leadership showing up at these meetings makes a huge difference. Now, culturally, sometimes it's, it's hard for American officials because I think Robert and Charles, you know, we go to these meetings and a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of talk and not a lot happens, but that's besides the point. You get a lot of credit for showing up. Second, I would say our engagement and leadership um, and participation in both multilateral and regional organizations makes a huge difference. So there again, you know, really participating in the APEC agenda and not just trying to take words out of the annual communiques and making APEC all about the final statement, but really engaged in the work program. And I would say the same for the WTO um, and other groupings as well. 
And third, and this is where I think um, we can move forward if we're not prepared to do a comprehensive trade agreement, and I don't think we are, um, and that is why not move forward with narrower sectoral agreements that complement and align with our domestic priorities. So whether it be digital or whether it be climate change and trade or whether it be looking at forming secure supply chains, those are just three examples of, of topics for narrower sectoral agreements that we could pursue in the region. They wouldn't have to, our, our activity wouldn't have to stop there. They could serve as, as building blocks or stepping stones, but they, they would allow us, I think, to engage more quickly as we do what, what we need to do at home along the lines of, of what Robert described. It's interesting you, you, you bring this up too, uh, Wendy, and I think it's a really good point about these sectoral agreements and what can be done. How can we advance the ball? It sort of reminds me of the time when we had the impasse at the WTO in, in the aftermath of the Doha fiasco. And Bob Zellick uh, was out there promoting, let's go, let's embark on a process of competitive liberalization. So let's, in effect, let's do what we can at the regional level or sub-regional level to, uh, to, to advance the ball on standards, on, uh, on high value agreements. And this is sort of a different approach, but kind of philosophically the same. Let's look at digital trade or in the environmental goods issue, services, and see where we can move the ball to create high standards with the idea of hoping that this be, comes, comes around to coalesce into something bigger. But also, back to your earlier point, Wendy, um, if we don't do that, then the provisions such as what we've seen in RCEP could be adopted more widely um, as other agreements are being put together and, and even at the WTO. So I think you've raised some really good points on what is it What is it that we can do and how is it that we can engage in a way that's constructive and, and moves American interests forward while dealing with the, the domestic hurdles that we have? Because Robert, I agree with you, the domestic hurdles in my time in Congress over 12 years they were just getting more and more complicated, more and more difficult. And I think the level of complexity today with both parties is at a high, and it's going to be very difficult. And can, can I just add the beauty of, of some of these sectoral or, or um, narrower agreements is they would not require congressional approval if they don't change U.S. law. Now, they would, they would require congressional consultation but that's different than actually, ha you know, having to force a vote on trade, which you know very few members like to take. So, Robert, you, I want to bring this point up. Let's take the the digital trade agreement with Japan. That did not require congressional approval, but then you pointed out earlier it's not actually enforceable. And this is this is a gray area that I have concerns about. I want to explore that further. Look, I, th I think we would all agree that enforceable trade agreements are the gold standard. That if you can get an agreement that is good for the U.S. and we have the ability to enforce that agreement with our trading partner, whether it is one country or a group of countries, that is the gold standard. That's the gold standard. But in the absence of that, 
the next best thing is an agreement like the U.S.-Japan Digital Trade Agreement, where you have two countries who commit to high standards. They are not only doing it, the U.S. and Japan, for themselves. It was less about the bilateral, but more about the first and the third largest economies in the world coming together, the U.S. and Japan, to say this is what the global standard should look like on digital trade. And so it took TPP, CPTP, and added to that. And that, I think, is an important signaling exercise because it signals that in our future bilateral binding agreements that we would want to see that as the new floor. And it signals to other countries who might have lower standards of protection for digital trade that the U.S., or in this case Japan, we're not likely to accept anything lower. And to Wendy's point, I think that then there's a big opportunity as well for the Biden administration on the environmental issues and also on climate. You know, we see some efforts by New Zealand and Canada and others to deal with some of the climate-related issues. We know that is a huge priority throughout the Biden administration. And I think that it is possible, not easy, but possible to craft a environment and climate agreement along the lines of what the U.S. did with Japan on digital, where the U.S. finds high standard countries who are willing to embrace the same environmental principles. It will move the U.S. even more solidly into reinforcing our Paris climate commitments. But for the Biden administration, it will allow them to show leadership on trade, whereas to do that in the, con in the context of a broad, comprehensive trade agreement would be both time-consuming, politically fraught on Capitol Hill, and the Biden administration needs to be active, engaged in trade, but also in issues around climate. So I think there's a lot that can be done. And I think that the Biden administration will want to engage. I think Catherine Tai's uh, testimony, um, and by the way, I think she's an exceptional nominee to be the USTR, the right person at the right time. And she made it clear that she's not, you know, she's not standing back from this, but she also realizes that trade can't be viewed in a vacuum. So I think they'll be looking for ways to engage, but they're not going to start another major you know, group negotiation or even abiding trade agreement until we get things right at home and we know that we have the support of Congress. You both raised some really good points uh, to summarize. One, it is this is a way to signal our allies that we are engaged and engaged at setting the highest standards across the board. And then secondly, um, it's by using the strength of our economy, working with Japan, particularly on the digital agreement, but if we can do something similar with climate and so forth, or healthcare. It's setting standards among large economies that hopefully will be in a position to be adopted uh, by other countries, uh, particularly the WTO, as Wendy pointed out, which I think is a very important consideration. Oh, can I just add oh. one point also? I think it, it really helps us rebuild trust with um, a lot of trading partners who are pretty disgusted with us over the past four years. I mean, you know, there's a challenge for the Biden administration. I mean, people want us back, but 
you know, people also remember how they were treated over the past four years. They recognize our country is divided. And I think there is some wariness about like all in with the United States. So um, I think there is going to be a process of rebuilding trust. And I think these narrower agreements allow us to start the process right away to rebuild that trust. And to follow on on that point, uh, both of you are experienced in trade negotiations. You know, I, you, you speak with a lot of credibility about this trust issue, sitting, you know, sitting across the table from your counterparties, uh, working through, through very difficult issues, oftentimes very contentious issues. Give a little perspective. Uh, I'd like both of you to give a little perspective on how spending that time together, developing that trust, oftentimes will open up an avenue to get to an agreement on a tough issue. I'll start with that. And and this is one of the challenges of any negotiator having to work in a virtual environment is that you can do a lot, but it is very difficult to fully understand where there may be flexibility on the part of your counterpart negotiator to do things that allow you to get the things from the U.S. perspective that are the right deal. Uh, and that's because a lot of those discussions, certainly thinking of negotiations with you know, major countries in, in, in Asia, where the negotiator ended up having flex, some flexibility, but it was very difficult to show that flexibility in front of all the agencies or departments in that country who had all of their people who were lined up to watch him or her in that negotiation. Um, and it was part cultural on their part and part, you know, their ability to show where they could make some compromises. And so I think those things only happen when you're spending a lot of time, you have a lot of rounds together, you are um, having tough negotiations, but you're also able to read that person, understand where they may have flexibilities and get the best deal for the U.S. Those things just can't happen certainly as frequently in a virtual environment. So I think all of our trade negotiations will be better served when we are at a time where more of our negotiators can travel and we can conduct business. I think the second part of it is you have to go into those negotiations knowing what you want your outcome to look like. That means that you both agree that you want an end result. And whether that is a conclusion of an intercessional round where you want to show you've made certain progress, whether you see, I'll think of the U.S.-China bilateral investment treaty negotiations with China, where you see that there is an end goal that you want to get. And while the U.S. and China were not able to conclude that agreement, I will say that many of the things that China agreed to in the phase one deal trade agreement in the Trump administration with China were things that they had previously determined internally within China they were willing to do in the context of a bilateral investment treaty. So some things pay off in the short term, very few. <laughs> some pay off in the medium term. And then some things like the 38 or so rounds of negotiations, it might have been 28 or 38, that we had on the U.S.-China bilateral investment treaty ended up paying some dividends, not in the context of a bet, which we're not going to have, but 
that multi-year process had allowed China to have a process to agree to make some commitments to the Trump administration they would not have done otherwise. Yeah, and I agree with everything Robert said, and it sure brings back you know a lot of memories. I remember negotiating the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement, and you know this came after years of being in negotiations um, with Korea, where they didn't want to be at the table. Right? There was no shared objective there. They were fighting us tooth and nail every step of the way. But when it came to the FTA negotiations, they had the same objective we had. Now they had different reasons, right? They wanted a deal with the United States so they could be competitive vis-a-vis their neighbors um, between two big ones that they felt kind of sandwiched in in between. And so I'm not saying those negotiations were easy, but having a shared objective helps. But developing trust is extremely important because trade negotiations on both sides require you know, very um, politically sensitive decisions and a lot of political will. And if you can't, quote unquote, explore possible outcomes with your counterpart, it's very hard to reach an accommodation. So, you know, one of the tools we used to use in negotiating was, look, I'm not talking, you know, I'm speaking on a personal basis, but if I could do X for you, could you do Y for me? And that's just a way to kind of start the conversation and to get a better sense of their flexibilities, but also their priorities. And then to see, could you even, could you bring that home and try and sell that as well? And this is such, it's an iterative process and it involves a lot of back and forth. And I I think Robert will agree, a ton of patience. And, you know, just kind of resilience, I would say, to be able to kind of go through those ups and downs, which characterize any trade negotiation I've been involved in. I experienced a little bit of that when I was in uh, Tokyo uh, with a congressional uh, congressional delegation while we were negotiating TPP. And I remember after sitting across the table uh, for quite a long time with their their lead negotiator and, and and particularly their ag negotiator, um, it was pretty contentious going back and forth. And as we were walking out to leave, the ag negotiator came up to me and he said, you've always been a friend of Japan. We'll try to take care of you on that rice issue that's so important to Louisiana. So a little, little vignette about trust and developing friendships and relationships to make, you know, help smooth this over. But that's a really good personal perspective both of you gave on how difficult the job is, but why it's so important to develop trust, which we saw uh, in the last four years, obviously, uh, trust plummeted and and much, much work needs to be done to, to rebuild all of that. Let's pivot for a moment back to the domestic scene. I remember, uh, when we passed the last iteration of trade promotion authority, it was a, I mean, obviously that legislation evolved pretty significantly from the previous iteration with uh, much more consultation requirements and reporting timelines and so forth, but it was hard. And we had a Republican majority at the time. Uh, we we absolutely, absolutely needed 28 Democratic votes to pass it. And we got those by the hardest after a few hiccups in the House. Trade Promotion Authority is coming up again. Uh, It expires and has to be uh, reauthorized at the end of June. It's going to be hard. 
But, um, and again, and I think one other difference will be, this will be the first time in quite a long time that democratic majorities will be writing the law effectively. We know there's gonna be a lot of difficulty on the Republican side uh, because Republican politics have changed. Democratic politics have always been somewhat divided on trade, uh, certainly within the House of Representatives. I think this is going to be a difficult one. Do you think the Biden administration will ask for trade promotion authority or will there be a lapse? I mean, my view is there will be a lapse um, that, you know, the deadline's coming up quickly. Um, It's not just a question of rolling over this legislation. It's going to need some serious revisions. And I think Catherine Tai almost alluded to them yesterday talking about the objectives of TPA. I think they would need to be examined. I also think the consultation provisions would need to be changed um, given you know, the lack of consultations over the past four years between the executive branch and Congress. Um, and I, I think uh, you know, just other trade laws are, you know, will need to be looked at in the context of TPA. Like trade votes are not popular, but TPA votes are even worse because they're all about procedures. So there's nothing concrete there, and it's just not a priority. And I would also argue, I mean, ideally, in negotiating with other countries, ideally you would have trade promotion authority. But I wonder, you know, looking ahead, do we really need it going forward? Can we get by without it? Um, Or can it get passed for a specific negotiation when it looks like the outcome is imminent? Um, So... My view is that, you know, in the past, we've always needed our trading partners say it's so important because they want to know what they negotiate, um, you know, stays intact and they're not asked to do more. But let's remember, we always ask them to do more, even with TPA. And so, you know, my view is, yes, it's going to lapse, but no, it's not the end of the world. Charles, you certainly know this well from being in Congress and being so active on, on trade issues. Uh, I mean, you know, this is the process by which Congress determines how it governs itself. And Congress has determined that certain procedures will help the executive branch close the right trade agreements. But I think it has to be preceded with the sense of what those agreements would be and why they're needed. And right now, there's not a sense, you know, maybe the UK is the exception where Congress is looking to new trade agreements to be negotiated by the Biden administration. So I think in the absence of that, I don't think there's going to be a push in Congress to say, let's bind ourselves to a set of rules, which, as Wendy said, are then politically difficult for Congress to sell when Congress can't justify it because they want to help reach a Indo-Pacific agreement or a UK agreement or another. So I suspect there will be the pause. I think Wendy's absolutely right. Um, And then at the right time where the right mix in Congress and the right potential trade agreement is on the horizon, then I think you will see some version of it instituted, but I do think it's gonna lapse um, before that happens. Yeah, I agree with both of you on that. And I think, One thing I harken back to, I heard a lot of complaints from uh, particularly on the Democratic side of the aisle about the the way the Trump administration went about 
the Japan agreement. They notified Congress under TPA, but then didn't consult with them until they signed the agreement. Um, and then I guess a different a different set of circumstances would be the way the Trump administration used Section 301, started in a narrow vein and then expanded it into an agreement. And so there was no need for consultation or, or at least uh, Ambassador Lighthizer saw no need to consult with Congress on that. So I know Congress will want um, some assurance that there will be consultation, but I guess the, I guess the key point here is until we know what direction trade policy is going to go and, and what kinds of agreements will be considered, there, there will be no reason for Congress to, to really act on this. And, and, and I'll add to that, Charles, as well. I think in addition to that role of Congress, as we heard in the Catherine Tai hearing, there were a lot of discussions around transparency and different members have different views of what that transparency looks like. Um, and so without sort of getting into those individual senator perspectives, I'd say the general view is wanting to have more confidence building on the part of the American public around trade priorities, how they're being negotiated, which then gets to this ultimate question of do people feel that they are the right balance and that they're fair? And again, a lot of different ways you could construct that, but I think the transparency part is also something that members of Congress are asking for. And there will ultimately need to be a right recognition of what that looks like in the context of any trade promotion authority that may be granted in the future. And I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, Catherine Tai is so popular in Congress. I mean, how many times yesterday in her confirmation hearing did she underscore her commitment to consult with Congress and individual members um, as she goes forward? And she has a proven track record there, which is even better. These weren't empty words. And I think that's going to be so key in terms of trying to rebuild domestic support, both in the public and in Congress, for trade and trade agreements. In, in her case, to have the Democratic chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and the Republican ranking member of the House Ways and Means Committee, a committee that you certainly know well, having served on it, to have both of them coming over to the Senate to speak and vouch for her really also shows that she has an ability to unite people. That also is going to be a real key part of whether there's a TPA, there's successful negotiations. It's trying to build on, I think, the work that was done in the USMCA. And not necessarily for that as the perfect framework, but that is the way that showed that parties were able to work together, including with Catherine and others, to come out with an end result that could get widespread support. Let's switch over uh, in our remaining time. Uh, I don't want to ignore the China issue um, to any extent here, but I also want to kind of weave in this supply chain issue. We we have we now know the administration's embarking on a, an interagency review process uh, of all these supply chain vulnerabilities, and in my view, trade trade policy is very important with regard to supply chain development. You know, creating sort of the framework in which businesses can make decisions that create the kind of certainty for supply chain and global value chain development. 
there's a lot of empirical information in the trade world about this. Uh, you know, developing countries that that you know embrace high standards for trade and, and investment uh, tend to move up that ladder more quickly in terms of attracting investment and supply chains and becoming part of supply chains and, and that connectivity. So once this review is out, clearly we're going to see areas where we have vulnerabilities. Uh, and the question is broadly, how does trade policy fit within that? Which is one of the reasons why, and Wendy and I have talked a little bit about this, about more comprehensive, uh, comprehensive types of agreements on investment and trade that set standards for participation uh, in supply chains. And I think that's gonna be important as we deal with China. Um, you know, if you just simply try to impose tariffs, we know there's a limitation with that. We've already seen it. Um, so the question is, how do you create these safe networks or clean networks? What role does trade policy play in that versus other tools, which I don't think those tools are available at this time, uh, or at least we don't have a clear view of what those tools are. What are your thoughts broadly on that? Because it seems to me that's the way to build leverage in working with China, you don't single them out. You just, you know, make it difficult for them to participate in supply chains unless they change. You know, one aspect of the executive order that was just issued earlier this week on supply chains, and particularly the 100-day review of four key sectors that caught my eye, is that recommendations will also be um, offered. And these recommendations are not going to be limited to reshoring. Um, I think the Biden administration recognizes reshoring is not going to work. It doesn't make sense in all cases. It may make sense in certain cases, but they also talk about working with allies and partners on supply chains. And so I think that's going to be a very important way, not only to develop resilient um, and trusted supply chains, but also to reduce our reliance on China in key sectors and reduce our vulnerabilities. So I would just put put that on the table. I, for one, think trade agreements are like key in terms of, of producing secure supply chains. I mean, I don't really know how you produce them without commitments on a, on a common rule of origin or on high IPR standards or, you know, common technical barriers to trade, uh, common rules on, on technical barriers to trade and standards. So I think trade plays an extremely important role um, in, in this work. And Catherine Tai, she mentioned that yesterday, that, that USTR is going to be very involved um, in, this supply, in these supply chain studies that were um, man, mandated this week. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Wendy, uh, on the importance of trade in these. And I guess the question is whether, the, you know, whether they can construct uh, informal agreements among countries that have some level of uh, assurance for the business community as they construct supply chains so that you actually architecturally sort of shift things away from China to create this resilience and redundancy with allies. It'll be interesting to watch and to see what kind of policy recommendations come out. Yeah, and, and I don't think you need a formal trade agreement. I think, you know, that's good, but I think there are informal ways to do it also, particularly if you share the same objectives with a group of like-minded countries. Charles, I, I, I completely agree that the 
approach, I think, will be, and I think the, the EO this week signaled that the administration was open to fact that things, some things would be um, onshore in the U.S., some things could be nearshored, uh, and some things could be working with common partners. And I think that was a good signal on top of the broader analysis that they're doing, which is really at the heart sort of two things. One, they're the 100-day studies, which are really looking at, do we have short-term vulnerabilities, clearly driven by the pandemic, causing us to think about this, short-term vulnerabilities that need to be addressed quickly. And then there's the one-year studies that look at the overall sort of industrial base, whether it is for defense or whether it's for health or others. Those inquiries are, you know, are good to have. We should know that. And quite frankly, one of the things that the pandemic showed us is that we actually didn't necessarily know and understand, largely because the government hasn't been in this role of understanding all our supply chains and what they look like. So I think this work will be useful. You take the National Academy of Sciences and Medicine study that that Congress required. Um, I think these will be helpful tools. And the Biden administration is clear that when they're saying buy American, they want more buy American, but they're not saying only buy from America. Great. One last topic. I know we're getting close to, to an hour on this. Uh, WTO reform. I think all of us are relieved that the Biden administration reversed the position of the Trump administration on the new director general of the WTO. It's critical to have somebody uh, in that leadership position uh, for things to move forward. Wendy, how did, you've been really involved in uh, a lot of discussions about WTO reform. How do you see this playing out now with the Biden administration, at least in general terms? Well, I really think there's a great opportunity to make the WTO work. And frankly, if, if the members can't make it work now, then this might be their last shot. As you mentioned, we have a new director general. She's quite impressive, Dr. Ngozi. She's you know, she's um, a very um, distinguished career, both working as Minister of Finance in Nigeria, but also as the managing director of the World Bank. And she's got quite a presence. And so I, I see her as a kind of a feisty, kind of determined woman who is not, is, she's not going to suffer any fools. Now, all that said, the director general has limited powers. And, and frankly, a lot, all of it relies, frankly, on, on the WTO members. But I think with her starting, there'll be some goodwill, and I think folks will hopefully try and move forward. At the same time, the Biden administration is talking about positive, constructive, and active engagement in the WTO. I think three words that WTO members were dying to hear and didn't hear any of these words over the past four years. And you, China has a new ambassador in, at, in Geneva as well someone that Robert and I have worked with who's, um, you know, quite, has quite a good reputation. And so, you know, this is kind of, the stars are kind of aligning, but I can tell you the agenda is, is fraught, the problems are deep, and if solutions were easy, they, they would have already been found. But I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the WTO can somehow, you know, remain relevant and score some early victories and show particularly its relevance with respect to COVID, economic recovery, dealing with non-market economies and the climate issue. This is very much like your first question of what's changed. <laughs> and that question is what's changed in the U.S. that puts the U.S. 
in how we look at our trade going forward. And I think we also know that a lot has changed that requires reforms in the WTO. And that discussion is underway. I think the Biden administration has cleared, made clear they want to work on those reforms. And indeed, those reforms are necessary for the WTO to be an effective organization. So, you know, I think a lot of people who focus on trade are sort of expressing concerns about what they view as the breakdown of traditional trade arrangements and trade agreements. And I guess I'm sort of the glass half full guy that I think sometimes changes are necessary to get you to think about it in a new way. And clearly, just like NAFTA needed to be updated, as it was ultimately through the USMCA, the WTO needed to be updated. And I think the Biden administration will work to try to have that happen. It doesn't guarantee that all the changes will be made. It, these are tough issues, but engagement is the solution to having something better than what we had before. And this might ultimately be uh, the, the Biden trade agenda, informal and sectoral type agreements, you know, working from the outside back to a more central view and then working the central side at the WTO and not getting mixed up in all the politics of regional and plurilateral types of uh, trade agreements. And of course, couple that with enforcement. And that kind of gets back to our roots on trade policy. And that is, you know, how do you create a global trading system with enforcement? But with that, this has been a terrific discussion. Thank you both, Wendy and Robert, for bringing your amazing talent and expertise and knowledge uh, to this discussion. I hope those who listen to it uh, will find value in it. And on behalf of NBR, I want to thank both of you for taking time to do this. Thank you, Charles. Thank Thank you. you, Wendy. Thanks. This podcast was produced by Ian Smith. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bell by the Bayou. Website development was led by Sandra Moore. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.